From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience is set to screen the documentary Rosenwald about the Jewish philanthropist who helped open thousands of schools for black youth in the early 20th century. We learn about a photography exhibit documenting these schools and the history they house. But first... The University of Iowa's basketball phenom, Caitlin Clark, is nearing the end of her collegiate career and closing in on the all-time NCAA scoring record. The record, of course, currently belongs to LSU's Pistol Pete Maravich, who scored 3,667 points in just three years before leaving for the NBA in 1970. And this, of course, was done without the three-point line. Here to tell us more about Clark's journey to taking Pistol Pete's title and when she might finally nab it is Juri Longman, sports reporter for The New York Times. Juri, thanks for being here. Thank you. And just to note, this conversation was recorded before Thursday night's game against Michigan, where Clark broke the women's collegiate basketball scoring record. Well, Juri, you are from Louisiana. You went to LSU. So can you start just by reminding listeners how much of a legend Pistol Pete is when it comes to LSU sports. How did he impact the game of basketball on campus? I'm seven years younger than Pete, so I was in you know junior high and high school in Eunice, Louisiana, when, when Pete was at LSU. But um, the most visible impact probably when he was a freshman, because freshmen were not eligible for the varsity, so they would play in the old agricultural center, the John M. Parker Ag Center, a rodeo arena. And they would fill it up for, you know, the freshman game that people would leave for the varsity game. So that right there will show you what sort of impact he had on, you know, on the campus itself. And then, you know, it's a football school, but he brought, you know, he basketball for that, for, for you know, for that period became a big deal. I mean, LSU was known for, for basketball, for having this, you know, this very creative player who you know, led the nation in scoring and was a, you know, razzle-dazzle passer. So it's sort of, uh, you know, it took a football school and made it into, uh, you know, for a while, a basketball school, even though the football was good. <laughs> yeah, but the basketball was more exciting. Well, someone once referred to Pistol Pete's scoring record to me as a Ruthian record, obviously refers to baseball great Babe Ruth, and kind of implies that this record might never be broken. So when did people start to realize that Clark was actually on track to break this record? You know, people came into this year, this season, realizing that Caitlin had a chance to break the NCAA record. And then along the way, I think people realized, well, wait, wait, she might, you know, have a chance to to break Pete Maravich's record as well, which seems likely. I mean, they now would have four regular season games left, the conference tournament and the NCAA tournament, which may give her, you know, 10 games. And if she averages 30 points a game, that's 300 points. And she's only, you know, 100 or so points behind Pete. So it seems likely. And she also, the other thing is, Caitlin is eligible because of COVID for another season. So she could come back to obliterate all the records. <laughs> she definitely could. Well, because top basketball players these days typically leave college for the NBA draft before finishing, this record remained pretty untouched for over 50 years. And it was kind of assumed that if anyone should break it, it would be someone from a small school, not particularly NBA bound, who was kind of just specifically aiming to break this record. And last year, that almost happened with Antoine Davis. Can you just remind us what happened there? So last season, uh, player Antoine Davis from Detroit Mercy 
uh, came within four points of breaking Pete's record. Um, and then there was some debate because they were not invited to any of the postseason tournaments, including the ones where you have to actually pay to participate. So he was a little upset that he didn't get to break Pete's record, but he also played five years in college. And of course, with the addition of the three-point line, something that yeah. Pistol Pete didn't have at his disposal. So you know, there were a lot. There were a lot of differences between Pete's era, Caitlin's era. Right? I mean, one, as you say, there was no freshman eligibility, no three-point line, no shot clock for Pete. And also importantly, in those days, you know, there are 68 teams in the tournament now. In those days, there were only 25. I mean, one year during the Pete era, USC lost two games all year. And they might have been the second best team in the country, but they didn't get to go to the NCAA tournament because they had lost. So that was a thing, a hindrance. Pete could have played more games. On the other hand, so Pete played in a, in a segregated era. And the, and the two most visible times that he played against power teams that were segregated, it did not end well for LSU. So in December of 1969, LSU played against UCLA, lost 133 to 84. It was the it was the most points UCLA had ever scored to that point and one of the largest margins of the victory. So, And then a few months later, LSU with Maravich played in the NIT. And in those days, Marquette was a highly you know, top 10 team and Marquette really beat LSU 101 to 71. So, you know, the, the Southeastern Conference was basically segregated in those days. I want to talk a bit about Pistol Pete and Clark as players. How are they different and how are they similar as leaders on the court? So Pete opened the game up for individual greatness and creativity and flair and audacity, which Caitlin has a lot of. But I think she's sort of turned her sort of creativity into in a better into a better team performance. Pete was great, but the LSU teams were not good or they were average. Uh, you know, Caitlin has, I think, a better sort of team team way of playing or at least more success as a team um, yeah I would I would agree I think you know Pete really embodies this star player element of the sport and while no one would doubt that Caitlin Clark is also a star player I think she uses her star power to uplift the other players on her team and allow them to shine as well we are speaking with Jury Longman sports reporter for the New York Times about the University of Iowa's basketball superstar Caitlin Clark who's on track to break the all-time NCAA scoring record set by LSU's Pistol Pete Maravich of course I don't think it's lost on anyone that here we have a woman who's on track to break this record so can you just tell us a little bit about what that reaction has been in the sports world and what you think it means that this 50-plus-year-old record might be broken by a woman. So I've noticed online that, that some of the LSU fans feel threatened by it. Uh, and I don't quite understand. It. I mean, LSU fans are like a lot of other fans, passionate but insecure. So um, I think they, they do feel threatened by this, but I don't understand why. Because everyone understands it was two different players, two different eras. I mean, it's not like... You know, Caitlin Clark's Iowa team would beat LSU's Pete, Pete Maravich team. I mean, nobody's suggesting that. Well, the way I look at it is, say, you know, uh, boxing classes. No one expects the featherweight to beat the heavyweight, but you can enjoy the skills of both of them. And that's the way I wish people would look at that. Uh, but, you know, but but some people do sort of feel threatened to try to diminish it. But I would say no. I would say celebrate. Well, when might we see Clark finally break Pistol Pete's record and not only this record, but she's also chasing the women's college basketball scoring record. So um, Caitlin has four regular season games left, and she's a pro- you know roughly 100 points or so, probably uh, 
behind Pete. But there's another women's record that she has to break first. It's the women's college record. It's not the same as the NCAA. So before the NCAA started, tournament started in 1982, for 10 years, there was another organization that sponsored women's sports called the AIAW, Association of Intercollegiate Women's Athletics. But uh, Lynette Woodard, a player from Kansas, has her record is like 18 points behind Pete's. So Caitlin would have to break that first, which I'm sure she'll do. And, uh, and then she will, you know, I'll, I would say if she stays on her scoring average, that she would probably break Pete's record by the end of the regular season or maybe in the Big Ten. Well, speaking of these tournaments, March Madness is just about a month away. Do you think we could see an LSU-Iowa rematch, another showdown between Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark? And if so, what do you think that might look like? So, yeah, it's definitely possible. I mean, LSU has been erratic, but you know they've sort of have, they've struggled at point guard with Haley Van Lett. She's a, really a shooting guard. Um, but I, you know, they should have beaten South Carolina. They played South Carolina as well as anyone this year. And I don't know why they, they LSU couldn't get back to the Final Four. I sort of am less confident that Iowa will get back to the Final Four. They don't have the same team. Last year, they relied on their you know, for post player, Monica uh, Sinano, who was so brilliant. And so Caitlin was feeding so efficiently with her passes that I think Sinzano, I I think the status, she only had to take 85 dribbles all year. She was getting the ball so close to the basket. And then now they, they don't they don't have another reliable outside shooter. They have a player named Gabby Marshall, who's their designated three-point shooter, but she's sort of uneven the way she plays. So I kind of um, I kind of wonder where the Iowa would get back. I mean, they can, but we'll have to be, Caitlin will have to have a, a big game. Well, before we go, any final thoughts on Clark and her legacy and what this will really mean for women's sports to see Caitlin Clark overtake Pistol Pete's record. So we're at a point, at least this season, where women, you know, Caitlin is more famous probably than any men's basketball player in college. But we're at a point now where where she is the most famous college basketball player, you know, man or woman. People are, I mean, 10 million people watched the uh, Women's Final Four Championship LSU-Iowa game last year. So there's a, you know, there's a built-in audience. The question is, and it's always been the question, is this the sign of something that's, going to keep happening or is this another one-off i mean we've been through these eras before cheryl miller at usc three eras at uconn you know the diana tarasi sue bird era maya Mm -hmm. moore era brianna stewart winning four championships and it didn't sustain college basketball the way caitlin clark did or at least raise it up to that level there are all these studies that show that you know only three to five percent of the media is, is sort of dedicated to women's sports so that's my my question is where do we go going forward? Is this, is this really a tipping point or, or is there more building to do? I, I, I don't know. That's my that's the thing I'm curious about. Well, we'll have to find out. Jury Longman is a sports reporter for The New York Times. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On February 28th, the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans will offer a film screening of Rosenwald, a documentary on the story of a Jewish philanthropist who teamed up with Booker T. Washington to open more than 5,000 schools for black children in early 1900s America. The screening coincides with the museum's exhibit on Rosenwald schools, in which photographer Andrew Feiler traveled throughout the South, documenting these schools that are still standing today and sharing the stories behind them. 
In December, we spoke with Filer about his photography project combining his artwork with his activism. Today, we give that conversation a second listen. Well, let's start at the beginning. Who are these characters, Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington, and how do they come together to try to enhance educational opportunities for Black students? So Julius Rosenwald is born to Jewish immigrants who had fled religious persecution in Germany. He grows up in Springfield, Illinois, across the street from Abraham Lincoln's home. And he rises to become president of Sears, Roebuck and Company. And with innovations like satisfaction guaranteed or your money back, he helped turns he helps turn Sears into the world's largest retailer of its era. And he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And his cause is what only later becomes known as civil rights. Booker T. Washington, born into slavery in Virginia, attends Hampton College, becomes an educator, and is the founder of the historically Black college in Tuskegee, Alabama, originally known as Tuskegee Institute. These two men meet in 1911. And you have to remember, 1911 is before the Great Migration. So 90% of African-Americans live in the South. And public schools for African-Americans are mostly shacks with a fraction of the funding provided for the education of white children. Many jurisdictions do not even have public schools for African-Americans. And in 1912, they start this program that becomes known as Rosenwald Schools. And from 1912 to 1937, This program builds 4,978 schools across 15 southern and border states, and the results are transformative. That's so remarkable. Well, what can you tell us about these schools? Where were they? How big were they? How are they funded? And were there any famous alumni that came from Rosenwald schools? So there are two economists from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago who have done five studies of Rosenwald schools. In fact, I was just in in contact with them, and they were actually about to release their sixth study. And what their research shows is that prior to World War I, there was a large and persistent Black-white education gap in the South. That gap closes precipitously between World War I and World War II. And the single greatest driver of that achievement, and it is an achievement, is Rosenwald schools. In addition, many of the leaders and foot soldiers of the civil rights movement to come, come through these schools. Medgar Evers, Maya Angelou, multiple members of the Little Rock Nine who integrate Little Rock Central High, and Congressman John Lewis, who wrote this glorious introduction to my book, all went to Rosenwald schools. Wow. Well, of course, Julius Rosenwald himself was not Black, and he is Jewish, Why do you think he was so invested in this cause in in Black advancement through education? So Rosenwald sees um, America as a safe haven from anti-Semitism. And he sees that safe haven weakened by how America treats her African-American citizens. And he says, I believe in America, but I do not see how America could go forward if part of her people are left behind. And that's the origin of his commitment to civil rights and his relationship, his friendship, his partnership with Booker T. Washington is one of the earliest collaborations between blacks and Jews in the cause of civil rights and sets up and and establishes this foundation that blossoms during the civil rights movement with, uh, with people like Abraham Joshua Heschel with his white beard flowing, marching arm in arm with Dr. King and who famously says that when he marched 
with Dr. King, it felt like his legs were praying. Wow. We're speaking with Andrew Filer, a photographer whose latest exhibit featuring photos and stories about Rosenwald schools is now open to the public at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans. Well, tell us a bit about your project. Where did you travel? What were some of the schools that you saw? And what are they like today? Are any still functioning as schools or are they used for something else? What's going on? So I had never heard of Rosenwald schools uh, until February of 2015, when I found myself at lunch with a woman named Jeannie Syriac, who was an African-American preservationist. And she was the first person to tell me about Rosenwald schools. And the story shocked me. I'm a fifth generation Jewish Southerner. Uh, I have been a civic activist my entire life. The pillars of this story are the pillars of my life. How could I have never heard of Rosenwald schools? So I came home and I Googled them and I found that while there was a number of books on the topic, there was not a comprehensive photographic account of the program. And I set out to do exactly that. And over the next three and a half years, I drove 25,000 miles across all 15 of the program states of the original 4,978 Rosenwald schools, only about 500 survive. Only half of those have been restored. I shot 105 of the surviving schools. Uh, and the result is this is this book and this exhibition. I knew this was an extraordinary story. It was not clear from the outset how to shoot it visually. And so I started out shooting exteriors of schools, one teacher schools, two teacher schools, three teacher schools, but these small white clapboard buildings. By the end of the program, they're building one, two and three story red brick buildings. But when I found out that only half of the surviving schools had been restored, I realized that there is this historic preservation imperative, this adaptive reuse imperative. Most of these schools were too small to be continued to be in use for educational facilities today. In fact, of the 105 schools that I went to, only five are still in use for educational mm -hmm. purposes. And so to tell that narrative, the adaptive reuse and historic preservation imperative, I had to get inside and suddenly I needed permission. And that's when I meet all of these extraordinary people, former students, former teachers, preservationists, and I bring their stories into this narrative with portraiture. Well, let's talk about some of those photos that viewers will find in the museum. Are there any that really stick out to you that you can give us some extra insight on? So there is a uh, portrait of two African American men in their nineteen in their um, in their eighties inside of a Rosenwald school. This is the K Rose School in Sumner County, Tennessee. There's a portrait of Julius Rosenwald that hangs above the doorway that has hung in that spot since the schoolhouse opened in 1923. These are brothers Frank and Charles Brinkley. They both attended this school. They both went to college. They both went to graduate school. They both became educators. Frank became a high school math and science teacher. Charles became a middle school principal. They have four sisters. All of them came through this school. All of them went to college. These six siblings had 10 children. All 10 children went to college. That legacy may not have happened if it were not for the Rosenwald Schools program and this partnership between Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington. Wow. Well, of course, these photos, these stories, they involve talking with people. So who were some of the people that you spoke with for this project? And what were the stories that you learned from them? How did they contribute? 
So I'll tell you two stories in particular. Um, there is another portrait inside the Hopewell School in Bastrop County, Texas. These two elderly African-Americans are holding up this, this old photograph from the 19th century in this exquisite gilt frame. That photograph is of Sophia and Martin McDonald. They were born into slavery. And upon emancipation, they started raising farm animals. They acquired, they acquired some land. They acquired some more land. They eventually acquired 1,200 acres. And when the Rosenwald Schools program came to Bastrop County, Texas in 1919, the family donated two acres of land for the school. Its first teacher was their daughter. And one of her first students is her daughter, Sophia Williams, who's shown inside the Hopewell School, holding up this 19th century portrait of her, of her grandparents. Her husband, Elroy Williams, on the opposite side holding up this photograph, also went to a Rosenwald School in Bastrop County, Texas. They went off to college. They came back, had an entire career as educators in Bastrop County. As you mentioned, you yourself are a fifth-generation Jewish Southerner. And it strikes me that you're also from Georgia, which... Well, that's where the story of Leo Frank took place, the Jewish manager of the Atlanta pencil factory who was lynched. And as tragic and awful as that event was, I think for many members of the Jewish community, it was this awakening into how awful this crime of lynching was and in many ways really brought Jewish and black communities together. It's what started the Anti-Defamation League. I'm wondering how you see your identity coming into play with this work? How were you impacted on this journey as a Jew, a Southerner, and an artist? I have been a serious photographer most of my life. But about a dozen years ago, I started down this path of taking my work more seriously and mercifully being taken more seriously. And one of the things that I had to sort out is what is my voice as a photographer? My work is fundamentally about bringing people into essential stories in American history using photographs and stories. And there's one thing about this story that speaks to me specifically as an activist. Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington are building schools for African-American children in 1912 America, in deeply segregated Jim Crow America. That is a deeply optimistic act. That is a multi-generational act. And I find great power in this combination of optimism and long-term thinking. And indeed, for everything Congressman Lewis had been through, this was at the heart of his philosophy. He would say with great frequency, be hopeful, be optimistic. Our work is not the work of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the work of a lifetime. To, to me, the essence of this project is to be optimistic to think long-term, and in the immortal words of John Lewis, make good trouble. Andrew Filer, photographer whose work on the Rosenwald Schools can be found at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans, now through April 21st, 2024. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, You've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, sports reporter for the New York Times, Jury Longman, and photographer, Andrew Filer. 
Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And just a quick note before we go, I'll be taking a brief hiatus from Louisiana Considered from now through the beginning of May to work on an exciting upcoming project. Until then, continue to fill out our pitch line and listener survey found on the bottom of each show page. This way, we can keep bringing you the kinds of stories that you like to listen to. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.